And again, as so much of the scripture for many of us, we're probably quite familiar with the account, the story, the, the record of who Noah was in the Bible. Where we're going to look at his life just a little bit and be encouraged and challenged at the same time so that we, in the end, might desire to be like him. Amen? That he is, he's an example for us, so we're going to look. you're there in Genesis chapter 6, well, I'm going to read a couple of scriptures in just a moment, but a lot of us are familiar and aware of the amazing book, this Bible, that gives an account of history from the beginning of time until, well, actually, it's still giving a history of how things are now in many ways, especially with the condition of the human heart. Prophecies, people, um, all the different events that God had orchestrated in his, in his divine, amazing plan to to redeem, to save people back to himself. You know, the first couple of chapters of the Bible are amazing. And I just, you know, you read the first verse and it says, in the beginning, then what's the next, what does it say? God. He was there. There's no assumption. There's no, I wonder if, in the beginning, God was there, always was there, always will be there. He was there before anything was created. In the beginning, God, the Bible starts. And this amazing God wanted to be in relationship with people, so he creates the universe and all the things in it, and he creates humans on the sixth day. He makes man and, and, and woman, Adam and Eve. And he makes them for the purpose of a relationship, as I mentioned. He desires that so much. But then we know the story that goes on, that they, of course, they sinned, they rebelled against God, and the one thing they couldn't do, they did anyway. And as a result, God puts his plan into action, and he initiates, and by himself, he provides a sacrifice, and he clothes them with the skin of an animal. A sacrifice was made to cover their shame and their nakedness. A great picture, ultimately, of what Jesus would do with our shame and nakedness, spiritually speaking. That we were filthy, dirty, couldn't be hidden from God. We were, we were who we were, and he made a way for us to be atoned for and covered. Clean, because of his provision. In chapter 2 and 3, after the fall, after Adam and Eve's sin, the Bible records, all the way up until chapter 5 and 6, that the world was just going haywire. Doesn't it feel that way sometimes? Okay, I feel like it feels that way sometimes. And there's all kinds, of, it's chaotic, it's sinful, it's wicked. Can I just tell you that even though we feel that way, it's nothing new. It's not new. Sometimes because we live in our time, because our circumstances that are very personal seem so heavy and burdensome, and we look around us and it seems so dark and gloomy and wicked that we think the world has never been this way before. Well, i got news for you. In Noah's day, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. Violent and the corruption of men was so rampant, the Bible says. It was everywhere. It was prevalent. You couldn't ex- escape it. And in this world... The Bible records that it is all corrupt and sinful. In chapter 5 of Genesis, a man named Noah is mentioned. And he's mentioned because he is born to a man named Lamech. And when Lamech, well, his wife brings forth Noah, Noah is actually named, and his name means, and in that genealogy where he's evolved, his name means rest, or the one who brings relief. That's what his name means. 
And it's interesting because even though it's short, the narrative there, that soon, very quickly, in a couple of verses, you find out what Noah would bring relief from and to whom. Well, for himself, really, but in God's plan, there would be relief. There would be relief of all this corruption and the wickedness, and God had a plan to deal with that. Genesis chapter 6 and verses 1 to 7, it records there in that chapter in the beginning, God's displeasures with the world and all the wickedness in it. And let's read this morning verses 5 and 7, just as we start to make it our foundational text, and we'll move on, and there's a few other texts in this chapter and others that I'll reference, but we'll just read those those verses. In verse 5 in chapter 6, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, let me just pause there and just say, think about that for one moment, if you could even imagine, that the only thing that was going through the mind and inside the hearts of men on an ongoing basis was nothing but wickedness and evil. That's all it was. That's all it was. And here's God, the holy God, the creator, separate from all of creation, holy, perfect, pure, and he's looking down at his creation, and his heart is grieved, as we'll read in a moment here, the Bible says. It says here, the Lord was sorry, in verse 6, that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. No, God wasn't repenting in the sense that we understand like he sinned and he did something totally wrong. He was just so grieved and he was sorry that he saw that man made that choice. And God knew all along, he wasn't surprised by the way, but he saw all the corruption, the evil, and his heart was broken because his relationship with humanity was very distant, actually non-existent with pretty much all of them. That's what the Bible tells us in Genesis. There was nobody, all of humanity, everyone there. And as God is getting ready to judge the world with a flood, we read encouraging words in verse 6 about this man named Noah, the one who brings relief. It says, the Bible says in the New American Standard, well, it says it very similarly in all translations. It says, but Noah found favor, or maybe in your translation, grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. Now, let me just say something. For God to find, or for Noah to find favor in God's eyes means that he stood out. It means that he was different. There's a reason. Because if God is saying everything is wicked and all men and their hearts are continually evil, every intent of their heart is nothing but wickedness and evil, and Noah is singled out as somebody who finds favor from God, it tells me that something has been going on that God was aware of and God takes note of. And he highlights it, and that's why God shows favor on him. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The result of the favor that Noah had from God was what? He, was, he escaped the flood. It's a big picture. He escaped the flood. That's the favor that he found in God's eyes. The grace of God that was on him. And God allowed him to escape the flood. God chose him and used him. And there's a reason for that. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But why Noah? And how does this account of his life apply to us, to you, to me today? See, why Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord is found in verse 9. This is why Noah found that favor. 
It says in verse 9 that these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. Actually, I could just say amen, go think about that, and go repent. I mean, there's, there's our, those are really the crux, the points that we're going to kind of address just briefly here, but build on it a little bit, that these three things, that he was a righteous man, he was blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. They're all related, these three things, these descriptions of Noah, but yet they're separate and distinct in many ways. And they're powerful because those are the reasons why Noah found favor in God's eyes. And there's a basis for this conclusion that I can have much confidence in because the scripture tells us so, and I'll point that out momentarily. First, in verse 9, you see that he was a just man. Just the idea that he was just or righteous, depending on your translation. But in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word is the same. And the, the, the bottom line is, if I can paraphrase and put it in the vernacular so we understand it's very clear, it's simply this. He did the right thing according to God's ways. Not man's ways, not what he felt, not what somebody else said, not because it's grand, but according to God's ways, he did the right thing. According to God's standard, he was righteous. Now, there's, a, there's, a, there's an important thing here because when we talk about the fact that he was righteous, I'm not talking about him being sinless. And we, that's actually what the second description of Noah is. It says that he was perfect in his generations or that he was blameless. Doesn't mean that he was sinless, but that there was no blatant fault to be found in him. There was no pattern, there was no heart condition, there was nothing that he intentionally did to do wrong. And that was recognized by God, but he stood out from all the corruption because he was, if I could stretch it and say he was incorruptible, he was blameless. Doesn't mean he was perfect. I'm sure he had thoughts and whatever. But there was nothing someone could point out and say, you're guilty. You did that on purpose. That's your pattern. That's your heart. It's a character flaw. Either in the past or ongoing or whatever. He says he was blameless among all the people. He was blameless. He was a man of moral integrity among all the people. He stood out as different and separate from the wicked. I can't. I don't want to get off onto a side sermon, but I can't overstate just this one thing, is that he was a man of moral integrity among all the people, and he stood out as different and separate from the wicked. And I can only say, when I read that, it scares me to think what the church in today's time looks like. Because there isn't much separation. No, I'm not going to get legalistic on you somehow. But holiness is holiness. And that means you're separate. It doesn't mean you're perfect. If you're a holy, you're set apart. You are separate. You are not that. And Paul tells us that in Corinthians. He lists a litany of things, of all these sinful things. And he says, but that, you don't do this. You don't partake of this and then be part of the kingdom of God. Because that is what some of you were. You used to be that. You are not that now. you got to be separate you got to be blameless in what you do. He was righteous, he was just, he was perfect in his generations. That means that among all the people, he stood out as somebody who you couldn't find fault in. But finally, in, and next in, in the third part of verse 9, it says that he walked with God. He was in close relationship with God. 
Now, and I can't, again, just plain English. He was in close relationship with God. Fellowship, relationship. He talked to God. He walked with God. He heard God. He communed with God. You can use all the different words. But he was in relationship with God. And in walking with God, Noah did something very powerful and transformative. And if I could say guiding in his life. It was guiding in his life. And it was simply this. It was that he imitated Enoch, his great-grandfather. He imitated him. In chapter 5 and verse 24, we read about Enoch. And here's Enoch's story. Enoch walked with God, and then he wasn't. Right? Am I, am I misspeaking? Am I? He walked with God, and then he wasn't. I woke you up if you were sleeping. And he wasn't. It's a great picture of those who walk with God, have a relationship with Him, that one day there's something called the rapture that's going to happen. We're going to be walking and then that's it. We're walking with God. And this was his great-grandfather. And his great-grandfather who walked with God for sure passed on the things he learned in his relationship with God to his sons who passed it on to Noah. And Noah knew about the one true living God, how he should be worshipped and how he should be related to. Because you know what? The Bible gives us the, the evidence of that. Because the walking that Noah had with God involved these things. First of all, calling on the name of the Lord. He's talking to God. He's praying. He's asking for help. How do I know that that's true? And how can I prove that without a shadow of a doubt? In chapter 4, verse 26 in Genesis, the Bible says that the calling on the name of the Lord began with Seth and in his time. Part of his line in the family there. Calling out to God, recognizing there is a God asking for his help, his guidance. I need you, God. I recognize you're there, acknowledge you're a great God, and I'm not. Help me. In chapter 4, earlier, in verses 3 and 4 of that same chapter, we read the story of Cain and Abel. You remember Cain and Abel? So Noah would have known how important it was and how proper it was to bring a sacrifice as an offering to God. That's what God demanded. He would have known of what God expected. So he knew that God had to be brought an offering, a sacrifice, and be worshipped in that way. And certainly, without a doubt, he practiced that in his life. He worshipped God with a sacrifice, and then he called on the name of the Lord. They were, they were all precedents set for him by his ancestors. And he was taught that. And now in his time, he's the only one who's doing that. Do you ever feel like you're the only one among all the other people around you who are seeking God, who are trying to press into God, who are trying to do the right thing, who are trying to live blamelessly and with a pure heart and, to, to, and just please God in all you do? Do you ever feel like you're alone sometimes? Boy, try being Noah. Because he was the solitary guy that was sanctified, set apart for God, and God graced him to do what he wanted him to do. Noah loved trusted, and served God. That's supposed to be the definition and description of what Christianity is. Loving, trusting, and serving God. But he didn't only walk with God. The Bible tells us also, when we know the story about what happens after God reveals this to Noah, and he found favor in his own eyes, Noah, Noah in God's eyes, God says, this is what I'm going to do. You're going to build an ark. 
in chapter 6, and he tells them how to do it. And at the end of chapter 6 and verse 22, the Bible says, And Noah did everything the Lord commanded him to do. Now, think about this. You're in a desert, essentially. There's not much rain, nothing going on there, not much water. And God tells you, go build a ship, a boat, a big boat, 450 feet long minimum. I mean, that's what he's, that's what he's talking about here. And he starts building. He does it anyway. And the people are probably thinking he's crazy. His own family. Even Noah probably wondered, God, what are you talking about? But he loved and trusted and wanted to serve God so much that he obeyed him. He did it. And not even that, after he finished the ark, according to the specifications that God gave him, because see, if God tells you to do something, he'll guide you and give you exactly how to do it. Amen. He'll do it. No, you're not going to every single, but you will get the outline. This is how long it is, this is how tall it is, use this kind of wood, so on and so forth. He builds the ark, and then in chapter 7, God instructs him to take two of every kind of animal and bring them into the ark. Can you imagine having that job? I think God had something to do with that too, right? Bringing them all there. But Noah, in verse 5, it says, after God tells him that command, and that instruction, it says, And Noah did all that God commanded him to do. When there's repetition, it's called, that's supposed to be emphasized and highlighted. Noah was a man of obedience. He walked with God, and because he walked with God, he did all that God commanded him. He obeyed God. He trusted him so much, and his obedience came from his faith. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7 says, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, that being the flood, because there's no rain, there's no clouds, everything's dry, I'm building this ark for over 100 years, and what am I doing? But he kept going at it. He says, In holy fear he built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith, because as we know, Paul says in Romans, the just shall live by faith. The just live by faith. You know, with the tools that he had, he used. God provided the instructions and he guided him. And it's, the, it's an evidence of submission that in the midst of this circumstance, I'm going to build an ark. He submitted and he, did, and, he did, and he did it. He built and he brought the animals in. He did all that God commanded. Thank God, because if he didn't, uh, we might not be here. I don't know. Of course, we know God had a plan. He also was a preacher of righteousness. He wasn't just someone who obeyed God and did what he commanded, but he was a preacher of righteousness. How do I know this? Peter writes in his second epistle, he writes in chapter 2 and verse 5 that he was a preacher of righteousness. That Noah got up and he declared righteousness and holiness and be separate and there's something coming. Destruction is coming. He was prophetic and he was preaching the good news that there is a way out, but get right. And I'm building this ark. Be ready. And everybody blows him off. See, he preached by living righteously. That's a great way to do it. I understand that, and it should be. He, he lived righteously. But it was only, he could only live righteously because he believed and proclaimed righteousness in an ungodly world. See, it's kind of hard if you live righteously and then you, you, you don't preach that. Or if you preach righteousness and then don't live it, better put. So he's preaching this righteousness, but he's living it because he's just and he's blameless and he's walking with God and he's obeying God. And here he is, a preacher of righteousness, and still having God's favor, do you not think for one minute that he felt 
all the time, like everything he preached about righteousness was falling on deaf ears? I think he did. But he kept going. He obeyed God. He kept doing it, standing up and living righteously and proclaiming righteousness and living righteously. He was a preacher of righteousness. How about us? I'll just ask that question before I bring it up again at the end. How about us? So why do we need to find the favor of the Lord today, right now? Why why do we need the favor of the Lord? Listen, let me tell you, first of all, that it's not because of a threat of a worldwide flood. That's not why you need God's favor like in Noah's day. Now, now how do I know that? It's not because there's the threat of this destruction and this worldwide flood. Because in chapter 9 of Genesis, after after a little about over a year, when they finally get out of the ark on dry land, Noah makes an altar and makes a sacrifice to God. He does the right thing. He praises God. But then God makes a covenant with him and a promise. And he makes a promise and he says, I will never do this again where I flood the earth and destroy all of it. And the proof of that will be, I'll give you a sign, I'm giving you a rainbow. And every time you see one, hopefully you think about that. I know, I know a lot of people do. But God will never flood the earth to its destruction ever again. He will not do it in that way. He's not going to do it. And so I know that. So you don't have to find God's favor in your life and have God's favor upon you because there's this threat of a worldwide flood. We have floods. We have two to three inches of rain an hour with thunderstorms and all that, but we're not going to have a worldwide flood. I promise you, because God promised it. Instead, we need to find favor with the Lord because there is a promise that we will face the end of the world and there will be a judgment. The end is coming. When? I don't know. Well, how soon? I don't know. What's it going to look like? I don't know exactly. Is it going to be in a thousand years? I don't know. Well, when? Well, why? How come he's waiting so long? I don't know, but the end is coming. Just like Noah kept building and he kept saying, there's a flood coming. But no one believed him. And we do the same thing today as the church. Jesus is coming. And there's a heaven and a hell. There's a hell to lose and a heaven to gain. We've got to do this and to preach the gospel and let people know. There's the threat. And it's a real threat. Because it involves eternity. That people may not be with God. Because they don't have the favor of the Lord. And there will be people that don't have that. Luke chapter 17. We're familiar with the scripture. Jesus said in verse 26, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Listen, when we hear this, we can often get caught up with, and maybe you've heard other preachers, if you've you've read things or whatever. The point of Jesus saying this is not that, oh, the world's going to be so wicked, and it's going to be more wicked than ever before, and God's going to be up to here, and that's it, it's done. There's, There's some truth to that. And then people proceed to highlight, oh, you know, the the rate of this kind of sin, and this is what's going on in this world, and it's never been like this before, and highlighting all the... That's not the point that Jesus is making. The point that Jesus is making is that people live their lives as normal, and 
sinfully normal. They just lived their lives. They did the normal stuff people do and then lived their lives just like in Noah's day. They were corrupt. They were wicked. They, did, they didn't care about God. They didn't think about God, even though Noah was preaching. But the point of, the, of what Jesus says there is that these people, this came upon them unawares, almost like that. That it came unexpectedly. That it comes. That that judgment that was pronounced, it's going to come and you've got to be ready and then it just comes. We don't know when the end is coming, but it's going to come. And it's going to come when you least expect it. Jesus says it himself in Matthew's Gospel. It's going to come when you don't expect it. And you know what? It's not to highlight how wicked and evil, because there's sin in the world. God doesn't, but he's patient. And there's a reason why he's patient. The point, again, is not about statistics and description of how evil and bad and dark the world is, but that people were caught unaware. As if they don't know what's going to happen. And maybe they haven't been warned enough. I don't know. God only knows. Second Peter chapter 3, Peter again. I'm referencing Peter because in chapter 2 and 3, he spends a lot of time talking about Noah and what's going on and making a connection to the last days. Peter reminds that just as the world was one day destroyed by water, it will one day be destroyed by fire. Now, I don't know if it's nukes or whatever it is, but he makes a promise. The earth is going to be destroyed. And so because of this promise, this guarantee in the word of God that this world is not going to be here forever, this earth. We should be, as Peter says in chapter 3, verse 14, we should be diligent to be found in Christ in peace without spot and blameless. Now, I love how we always take this and say, well, that's God's job. He's going to keep us. We're declared righteous and we're sanctified and we're set apart with justified. All true. But let me tell you something, if that's your attitude and you don't do anything to keep yourself spotless and blameless and to live a holy life, uh, there might be a problem if that's your attitude all the time. Just letting you know. So when Paul, when Peter writes this, that we should be found in Christ in peace without spot and blameless, we should be diligent to do that. In other words, doesn't that kind of sound, to me, isn't it sort of saying that we should like, be like Noah and find grace in God's eyes? That we should share the characteristics of Noah, that, that we are just, that we are blameless, and that we walk with God, and then as a result of that, we're obeying Him, and that we're, we're preachers of righteousness? So how do we find grace in God's eyes? We know that there's a problem and a challenge that's called sin. Romans chapter 3 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? A lot of us, we understand that. We've been there for Christians. We're fully aware. The Holy Spirit opened our eyes. We understood that we were far off. We were sinners. But listen, we have to be just in his sight to have favor from him. Romans 3 tells us that it's available by faith. Justification is available by faith because we have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus, which atones for our sins. That's how we do it. We are found right in God's eyes, right? And once we are made right with God, we live our lives in a changed or a different way. And when we our lives are different, then we must be perfect in our generation. Peter also wrote, and he reminds his readers, that we should be holy just as God is holy. Not a popular thing to talk about or try to even live, but we're supposed to be holy and set apart. Be an example of holiness and righteousness 
And you will because you've been justified. You've been, you've been found favor with God. And you maintain that favor, if I will. And it goes back and forth. God supplies that favor and grace. But you keep it going because you're perfect in your generation with His guidance and with His power. And you be an example of that righteousness and holiness. And when you do that, it also means that we walk with God. You'll walk with God. You'll walk by faith, by the way, and not by sight. Not by the things that you see. Well, I see that uh, things are going well and I'm not doing everything God wants me to, so I'm going to keep going that way. No. No one sees. No one called me out. No. No. You walk by faith, not by sight. You serve a holy God. You're righteous, you're blameless, and you walk with God. And if you walk with God, you'll hear what is righteous and what is blameless. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 20 and 23 that... Anyone who loves him will demonstrate that by keeping his commandments. That means you obey. If, if you're walking by, by, by faith and you're, you're walking with God, you're going to do everything that the Lord has commanded you because you're close with him. You're hearing him. You're understanding his heart. You're understanding his will, his desires for you and, and how you fit into his plan before he comes back for our redemption. And as a result, we become preachers, of righteousness. Let me, let me just give you, there's a lot of evidence for this, but Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said something when he's talking about those who are citizens of his kingdom. He says, you are the light of the world. I'll just leave it there and you know the rest. You are the light of the world. You are. He didn't say when you feel like it. He didn't say if you get everything right. He didn't say if, he said you are the light of the world. If you are in his kingdom, if you are a child of God, if you have been if you found favor in God's eyes because of his grace and you're justified because of what Jesus did by your faith, you know what? You are the light of the world. You are a preacher of righteousness. You've got to shine it. You've got to tell it. You've got to proclaim it. You've got to live it. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15 emphasizes this even more. He says there, and it reminds us, Paul reminds us, that a lost soul cannot hear the good news unless someone preaches or tells them. Now, I know we, this has been mentioned before, and we have conversations, but I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm not sorry. I, I'm, I stand on this. It's not enough just to love people and do good things. Amen. It's not. Because you know what? Noah was doing a great thing, and he didn't know in the end, but he was building an ark that could house a lot of people and animals. He didn't know. He was doing a good thing, but he preached. He was telling why. There's destruction coming. But of course, even in the church today, you can't talk about that. Oh, the end is coming. There's destruction. You've got to face the judge. People are afraid to talk about that. That's the reality, the truth. There is a judgment coming, and it's parallel to the days of Noah when the flood came. We don't know the exact time, but what are we doing? Are we building our faith and this life of faith in Jesus, who is our ark? Are we doing that? Are we preaching the gospel message and telling others how they can be saved, even if they don't want to hear it? Because they didn't in Noah's day. They're not going to hear unless we tell them. So as we come to a close... I just want to point out that just as in Noah's days and ours today, there are those who follow God and know Him and those who don't. That's it. Noah's story makes an even greater statement actually than that. 
No, and this is a whole other thing. But the world had grown corrupt because if you read the account in early Genesis, because of the intermixing of the children of Seth and the children of Cain, boy, there's a whole story about that and a whole understanding theologically and historically about what that means. Noah was called to reverse that corruption that came. Noah and his family were to separate themselves from the world while they were still preaching to it. That can be tough, can't it? That can be tough. Be separate, but preach to it. And so we're called to do the same thing. Amen? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 to 18, Paul reminds the Corinthians, he says, and he quotes from the Old Testament, he says, Come out from among them and be separate. Says the Lord, do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The idea of being separate, not just at the moment of salvation, but throughout your lifetime, that you maintain that that relationship with your Heavenly Father, where you are separate from the things of this world. And when when you're not, you run back to Him and ask Him, Oh, Lord, please help me. Yes, we are called to touch the world with with God's love, Jesus' love, amen, by loving and serving and speaking and influencing and doing all that. And yet, we are called to draw the line. Noah did. The word separate in the Scriptures means to mark off by a boundary. There has to be a line between you and the way the world thinks, the way the world acts, and the way the world carries on. Noah was a living example of that to us. And the flood was the foreshadowing of the judgment to come. It's going to come one day. And the ark is the foreshadowing of a living way, who is Jesus, right? To escape that judgment that sin brings and causes. And only by him and in Jesus, as we know, we can even hope to make it. Amen? And so, my last question. So how are we to live? Before we walk out these doors, let me ask you a question. How are we to live then? What are we supposed to do? Can I just simply say, live faithfully. Live faithfully. Noah did. We are warned by Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-4, to 4, you notice I referenced him a lot. He says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. You know what they're saying? They're saying, this is a joke. Nothing's changed. There's advancements in humanity. Yes, there's problems and people make mistakes. And yes, whatever. But where's, where's Jesus? Where's the evidence that Jesus is coming? It's been 2,000 years. And people are losing interest. And people don't care anymore about the Bible. They don't believe that there's only one way to heaven. Ah, he's not coming. Forget. Don't waste your time with that Christianity stuff. Don't waste your time building you know, your faith on Jesus, your ark that will take you through the wrath of God. And, and you'll survive and you'll, 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 you'll be saved. Don't waste your time on that. Live it up. Love life. Live it like everybody else. Blend in. Don't be separate. You don't have to be blameless. Why why are you wasting your time? Have fun. Just sin. Who cares? I'm going on and on, but you know what? We face that all the time. Whether it's subtle or whether it's blatant in your face and slamming you and and hitting against you like like 40-foot tsunami waves. It's coming. How are we to live? Live faithfully. Don't stop building your life of faith in God. And when it 
Even when it seems like the end isn't coming. And you're wondering, when will it end? Because it's so difficult. Stay faithful, persevere, press on, be patient like Noah was. Because Peter also said that God is patient and he's not willing that anyone should perish, but they would come to repentance. He's waiting for preachers of righteousness who are righteous, who are blameless, who walk with God, and they demonstrate that by obeying him through the preaching of the gospel. Let's live faithfully. Be ready for that coming judgment by being right with God. And if you haven't come into a relationship with Jesus, maybe this morning you're being drawn or the Holy Spirit has been drawing you. I ask you to surrender, submit your life to his lordship. Ask him to forgive you of your sins as your savior and ride through it all with him. He'll take you through the flood and all the wrath, everything that's coming one day and you'll be with God the Father one day because you're, if I could say, riding his back. He died for you. Submit your life to him. got to be right with others and you have to have a reverent and worshipful relationship with God as I mentioned that is displayed in obedience to his commands so let's be like Noah amen and work with God we don't save people but let's work with God for the salvation of many souls in this perverse and dark and corrupt generation not any different than the other but they all need to go into the ark And let's work with God to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Amen? Of salvation in Him. Amen? Let's be like Noah. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank You this morning for the life of Noah that You have given us in Your Word to remind us, Lord, that uh, Your favor is found, Lord, when we are faithful to You, that when we we are righteous, we are blameless, and we are walking with You in relationship with You, growing in that relationship with you. And as a result, Lord, we obey you and we declare you and the good news of salvation only and exclusively in you. Lord, I pray that you would empower us as we go, God, that we would have that spirit of Noah. We persevere and our faith is so strong and our eyes are so fixed on you and our ears are so attuned to your word, Lord God, and your spirit. That, Lord, we wouldn't uh, compromise That when we grow weary, Lord, we get rejuvenated because your word and your spirit strengthens us, O God. So God, as we go, strengthen us, Lord. Empower us, Lord, that we might be ambassadors for you. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Let's find favor in the eyes of the Lord like Noah. Amen.